I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. Coming up, our annual graduation special edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. First, a little item for your science calendar this week. This Thursday evening, May 23rd, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled, This House Smells So Good, I Wonder What I'm Inhaling. The speaker is Marina Vance from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder and a member of the Environmental Engineering Program. Dr. Vance will talk about what cooking and cleaning does to the air of our homes and, in particular, discuss a study called House Observations of Microbial and Environmental Chemistry, or Home Chem. In this project, led by Dr. Vance, over 60 researchers from 13 universities spent a month cooking and cleaning in a manufactured house to learn about unknown chemistry that happens when those everyday activities are performed. Although outdoor air pollution has been studied and regulated for decades, indoor air pollution isn't understood to the same level of detail, which is interesting because we spend about 90% of our time indoors. The speaker will talk about the complex reality of our indoor air quality, considering the influences from indoor and outdoor pollution sources. Everyone is welcome to these Cafe Psy presentations and discussions, which take place at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, close to Coors Field. The talk starts at 6.30 this Thursday night and ends around 8 o'clock. Come before 6 p.m. and leave yourself time to get something to eat and smell the air. Although you might not be able to tell by looking out the window today. It is springtime in Boulder, and that means graduation. So today's edition of How on Earth is our annual graduation special. It is a celebration of young scientists and engineers who have gone the extra mile and the extra four, five, or more years beyond their undergraduate degrees by continuing their studies in grad school. I see my guests counting on their fingers right now. <laughs> Our guests in the studio today are three young scientists who recently or have soon or will soon uh, get their PhDs. And they have joined us to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experiences, and what they have planned next. In the studio, I have Abby Reen's Marcus Paquette, and David Reens. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. So I'm going to start down the line here and just find out who you are, uh, what department you're in, what your thesis title is, and then just explain what your thesis 
is about. So, um, Marcus, I'll start with you. Uh, let me know what department are you in and what's your thesis title? Uh, thank you, Joel, for having us. Um, I'm in the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department at uh, CU Boulder. Uh, my thesis title, at least the working title right now, is In Situ Observations of the Solar System's Debris Disk from Earth into the Kuiper Belt. All right, now. Tell us what that means. <laughs> exactly. So a big portion of what I work on is um, some of you may remember the New Horizons mission, which uh, passed Pluto in 2015 and Ultima Thule not too long ago along the new year. Uh, on that spacecraft is something called the Student Dust Counter. This is a student-built, operated, um, calibrated, now ran instrument uh, that basically just counts dust. It sits on the windshield of New Horizons, <laughs> and every time a dust impact comes in, it registers it and gives us an estimate for its size. So I've been basically analyzing that data trying to figure out basically the distribution of basically micron and bigger sized dust in our solar system. So why are we interested in dust in exactly, the solar system? Yeah. I, I mean, I have dust in my house, but uh, you know, I don't have a big <laughs> experiment measuring it. Right. It's you know, you might not be. It's definitely not a plug for Lysol, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, solar system dust. Um, as one of the student before me would describe it, it's basically all the breadcrumbs of planetary evolution. So all the asteroids and comets and planetesimals in our solar system are continuously generating dust. And by studying the distribution and the composition of that dust, we can get a better idea of you know how many of those bodies are actually out there and their own distribution as well. So, in a way, the dust is a proxy for studying some of these other objects. Exactly. And actually, if we look out to other planetary systems, we generally can't see their planets, but oftentimes we can actually observe their debris disks as well. So I was wondering, yeah, why study the dust rather than the objects themselves? Yeah, because it's generally, like I said, if you look out, it's a lot easier to see that. Um, also, in our own solar system, you know, it's tough to really see these really far out objects, especially out in the Kuiper Belt and even the Oort Cloud, which is an even more extended. And the Kuiper Belt is a disk beyond Neptune. Exactly. Basically, a disk just beyond Neptune basically thought up to be this sort of primor primordial bodies of uh, early solar system formation. So the dust is helping you look back in time in a way. Essentially, yeah. It gives us an idea of basically how much material is essentially actually out there. And if I remember correctly, the student dust counter, uh, was it the first all-student done instrument on a major mission? Um, from what I believe, and it, it was a very interesting um, way it came to be, is it's actually a part of the education and public outreach portion of New Horizons, where they essentially let you know students, undergrad and graduate, basically design, build, operate, and do everything, except pretty much bolt it onto the spacecraft. So how did you, how did you get involved in this being your thesis work? Um, so I actually did my undergraduate at CU as well, um, and I worked with Dr. Mihai Harani doing a lot of sort of dusty, dusty plasma type uh, projects. Um, and eventually, he just asked, you know, would you like to take over the you know student dust counter project and you know give him the opportunity to work on a sort of professional grade project and be integrated into a full NASA team like that? Just seemed like a really great opportunity. Yeah, hard to turn that one down. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Marcus. Thank um, you. I'm going to move to my next guest, uh, Abby Reams. So, Abby, what department and what title? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Um, uh, my department is the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. So we do a lot of different biology in the department. Um, and my thesis title was called Salmonella Within Macrophages in Extreme Environment. Um, and so my lab studies salmonella, which I'm sure many people have heard of for causing food <laughs> unfortunately, poisoning. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> but we actually study a different kind of salmonella that causes a much nastier infection called typhoid fever. 
And typhoid um, isn't really a problem in the U.S. Um, because we have good sanitation, um, but in other parts of the world, um, it is a problem. And the really cool thing about typhoid fever and salmonella is that during this infection, um, salmonella actually survives inside human cells. Um, and those human cells are called macrophages, and they're actually a part of the immune system, and they're a white blood cell, and their normal job is to destroy bacteria. Yeah, I was going to say they're hiding in the thing that's trying to get them, right? Yeah, and it's actually a common strategy for a lot of uh, pathogens. So essentially by being huh. inside, they're able to hide out from the immune system. Hide, hiding, hide in the obvious spot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, okay. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, the macrophages, this is their job is to kill bacteria. And so um, Salmonella has evolved a variety of very cool mechanisms, very cool strategies to be able to actually survive in these cells and then replicate. So uh, what specifically is your study then? How they how they do that or how they survive? Or? Yeah, so I kind of had two, two parts of my thesis work. And the first was more focused on how salmonella replicates in these macrophages. And so um, just like us, in order for bacteria to replicate, and uh, to replicate, um, they need nutrients. Um, mm -hmm. And so since the bacteria are inside cells, they have to get those nutrients from the cells they're in. Um, and so, so very much a parasite uh, environment there. Yes, yes. But, of course, at the same time as Salmonella is trying to get nutrients, the macrophage is trying to keep Salmonella from getting mm. nutrients. Um, so there's only so many nutrients available for Salmonella. And so one of the questions I had was, what is Salmonella using for a carbon source? Um, and so uh, part of my work was... Uh, testing whether salmonella uses lipids as a carbon source. So lipids are um, the key molecule in our membranes, um, in the membranes of cells, but they're also used in other, uh, uh, in other ways in, in cells. And salmonella can use them um, as a nutrient source. And so I found um, that salmonella does use lipids as a carbon source. Interesting. So uh, they, they're using the lipids as a nutrient. The carbon source is basically mm -hmm. the nutrient. Um, have, do you then try to figure out how to make them stop doing that? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there has been some interest in that, not so much for Salmonella, but other bacteria that are known to use lipids. People have been looking for um, drugs that can inhibit uh, the ways that bacteria acquire lipids. Um, so not so much for Salmonella, but it's right. you know if we can use Salmonella, what we've learned, what I've learned about Salmonella is we think about these other bacteria as well. So is that where you see this research leading down the road, um, helping with? understanding how this mechanism works? Potentially, yeah. I think, um, yeah, so understanding um, why Salmonella is using lipids and where Salmonella is using lipids uh, specifically. So, you know, uh, typhoid fever is usually a several week long infection and some mm -hmm. people can become chronically infected. And so some of my data suggests that Salmonella might be using lipids um, during particular times of infection. So later in infection. So perhaps lipid use is involved in chronic, uh, in that chronic state huh. of infection. And the Salmonella, <coughs> the Salmonella is able to do this uh, without killing the host cell. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. So interesting little niche that mm -hmm. it has. Yep, exactly. That's balanced. a great word. Yep. Okay. Someone carves out a little niche for itself in these cells. And how did you evolve and find your niche? <laughs> I've always liked uh, biology and I've always been fascinated by um, infectious disease. I think the interplay between, you know, the immune system and microbes and how, you know, how microbes are able to survive in this really extreme environment that's trying to kill them, I find really fascinating and complex, and, and I enjoy understanding how that works. So uh, how did you 
decide on this specific topic for a thesis? Uh, um, <laughs> I think partly that's kind of just the the project that was open when I joined the lab. Sure. Um, so you know, my lab has you know we all kind of we all study salmonella and pretty related topics. But when I happened to join, um, that was you know the the project that my advisor pitched to me. We have an uh, opening here. Yep. <laughs> salmonella and microphages. Raise exactly. your hand. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Abby. Um, if you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Perker. I'm with three graduating graduate students from various departments at the University of Colorado. Uh, we've already met uh, Marcus Paquette and Abby Reens. Uh, so my next guest is David Reens. Uh, David, tell us your department and your thesis title. Joel, thanks so much. What a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm from the physics department at CU Boulder. Um, specifically, I'm from JILA, the Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics, um, which is a collaboration between CU and NIST. Mm -hmm. And um, my thesis is titled, Pushing the Limits for Directly Cooled Molecules. Okay, so you're pushing the limits. What limits are you pushing? <laughs> Tell us what your thesis is. Yeah, so um, uh, my larger subfield of physics um, AMO physics, atomic and molecular optical physics, um, is very concerned with trying to get pristine samples of atoms and molecules. So uh, what do you mean by pristine? Pristine in the sense that we try and get them very cold, in the sense that they're very pure in terms of their content. Usually we can work with a sample of only a single kind of atom or molecule. Um, that kind of uh, purity um, opens up lots of options for physicists. Um, for example, as far as we know so far, um, if I have a sample of you know, a few million um, strontium atoms, let's say, um, they're fundamentally identical, um, hmm. indistinguishable. And so this opens up opportunities to study effects without the sorts of statistical noise and other problems that you might have in other systems. Right, that have some other contamination or something. It, it's kind of like the theoretical physicists always think of the spherical cow, you know, kind of <laughs> going with the simplest uh, system to model theoretically because it's difficult to take complex systems. So you're kind of meeting them uh, at, their, at their middle ground there of trying to get a pure system that you can then compare to these models, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's all about having this optimum comparison for best understanding the real fundamental laws that are driving what's going on. So your project in particular, uh, you said OH molecules? That's right. And what are you doing with them? Yeah, so my project is um, specializes in applying to a broader class of molecules that wouldn't normally be uh, molecules that physicists could work with. Um, recent In recent history, there's been sort of a big boom in my field as we figured out how to get certain atoms to very low temperatures. Um, usually they're atoms that have some favorable interaction with lasers, um, but there's a lot of interest in extending these kind of techniques to new systems of new particles. Sure. And uh, so I work with a, a, a bunch of tools that um, that apply to, um, um, well, OH molecules is has been my specific focus during my PhD, um, but it's also applicable to water molecules, um, which is where we get the OH molecules from, sure. and a, and a wider class as well. So I I know that, like you said, 
lasers are a common tool for cooling collections of atoms. They have the lasers tuned to particular uh, energy lines for the atoms, for example. But you're using a different method? Yes, yes. And yeah, what is that? Yeah, that's right. So so the, the laser methods kind of require a lot of things to work out just right. Um, you need a situation where you have an atom or molecule which, when it absorbs a photon from the laser, it will, with high probability, emit a photon of the same kind. Um, that's important because you need the atom or molecule to be ready to absorb another photon from the laser. Right. Um, a lot of these cooling techniques require the species of interest to scatter millions of photons, we say, which is sort of slang for saying it needs to absorb and emit a photon millions of times. Um, and many molecules um, just have too much going on inside. <laughs> so they'll, they'll absorb a photon, sure, but then they'll emit a different photon and they'll end up in a different state than they were in uh, to begin with. So they're not ready to get hit by another photon of the same wavelength. That's right. Um, okay, sure. And so some other tech... The, the other... Um, you could say there's kind of three ways to do it. There's light, electric fields, and magnetic fields. And uh, many of you might be thinking to yourselves, aren't those sort of the same thing, right? Since <laughs> Sure, why not? Um, are those kind of the same thing? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and they are. So light is, um, you know, a wave composed of electric and magnetic fields. But I'm kind of giving you the experimental physicist view. <laughs> In the lab, there's three different things we can apply to our molecules, and they, uh, you know, they're made in different ways. So we are using not light, but um, electric and magnetic fields on their own. Okay. Um, and it doesn't require the state of the species to change. Um, okay, so yeah, you're, able, you're able to do it without having the molecule have to be in a certain energy state. Um, is that true? Well, you know, it needs to be in a certain state. Okay. But we don't rely on the um, the transition between states. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is an alternative way to cool down some collections of atoms or molecules uh, if lasers aren't necessarily the optimal way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So where do you see that? Well, first of all, how did you end up with this uh, task to do this thesis? Um, yeah, so I think um, more like Abby, it was maybe uh, what was available to me at the time. I think, uh, um, you know, probably only at the end of a scientific career does one really look back with enough wisdom to decide which path is the most valuable. It was um, a random, they usually end up being a random walk, you know, and you look back and it makes sense looking back, but yeah. So, uh, what about looking forward? Uh, how, what do you see this being applicable to? Yes. Or is it just fun? <laughs> yeah, so this research is definitely, um, further on the curiosity end of the spectrum where it's not directly clear what exactly it'll be used for. Um, but I can give you a, a handful of related things that are being done with this kind mm -hmm. of research. Um, so some molecules um, that aren't readily laser coolable have other very useful things about them for um, precision measurement. Um, there's, a, there's a nice experiment going on in my field where um, people have a cold beam of um, thorium oxide molecules 
Um, and there's a related team uh, here at Jilla that uses actually um, hafnium fluoride ions. Um, and these molecules just happen to have the property that um, the spacing between some of their levels can tell us about um, can tell us about uh, the dipole moment of the electron. Um, and this is something that um, it turns out um, not even large particle accelerators like mm -hmm. the LHC um, can learn as much oh. about this as our little experiments. Experiment. Oh, that's great. Um, so that's that's one example. So we can actually really get at fundamental physics with this with this research and not uh, anyway. Right. Yeah. No, it, and and that's always an interesting part of the sciences is sometimes there isn't a uh, a long game plan. It's sometimes curiosity driven and how many instances there are where something that someone thinks has no application, mm -hmm. you know, it's purely theoretical, ends up much to their dismay sometimes because <laughs> they like the purity of pure theory being applicable to something that just wasn't uh, known or of interest at the time. So that's part of the fun of science exploration. Um, Abby, I believe you're the you're the only one of my guests who has defended already. <laughs> yes, yes. And and how did the defense go? You know, it was it was. You know, I was nervous starting it just because it's a big moment. But at least in my department, it's more of a formality. They don't let you get to the defense unless they know that you're going to pass. And, and so, what is the formality? What is it like? Uh, sure. So so I give a I gave a public seminar. So my family came, um, and some of my friends and and some members of my department as well. Um, and so I basically described um, all of my research over the last seven years. Whew, it's a long time. <laughs> and, uh, and then after that, uh, all of my guests left and it was just me and the five professors on my thesis committee. And then I think it was about a half hour. They just asked me some questions um, that they had had on things I had written in my thesis or gave feedback on some of my the, the parts of my uh, presentation and and then that was it and then they said you did it you're done they told Go you the celebrate. secret handshake yeah. <laughs> no no secret handshake <laughs> <laughs> so so you you went in uh, I've heard a lot of people say you know the most about your field than anyone else mm. when you're defending your PhD. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's always true, but uh, <laughs> hopefully, you, you, yeah. Usually you go in uh, pretty confident that you're ready, and yeah. hopefully your thesis advisor knows that as well and helps guide you along the Definitely. way. Definitely, yeah. So, uh, David and Marcus, I believe you're both defending on June 17th. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. We just this morning uh, came to that real realization. <laughs> yes. So, um, Marcus, uh, are you ready? I think so. <laughs> I, it, whether I am or not, it's going to happen. So, sure. <laughs> just sort of finishing up the edits on the actual, you know, dissertation document. And do you, is the setup and the procedures similar to what Abby described? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm expecting, at least. <laughs> Hopefully, it goes right. well. And, and David, same for you. Um, yeah, yeah, I feel excited. Um, pretty confident. I uh, have a bit of writing to do still. Um, so, so that's actually a good question. Do you necessarily have your, your thesis, that, that paper, all completed and done by the time you give your defense? Yeah, so, yeah, there's this interesting mix of official department policies and uh, practices. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, my, my committee um, 
is uh, in principle will be examining me based on what they read mm -hmm. in my thesis document, which ought to be complete. Um, but on the other hand, there's a deadline for the submitted thesis to the department, which isn't until July 23rd. Ah, okay. Sure. Um, so I plan to kind of make some advantage of that, present my committee with a mostly complete document, but still with some intents to and clean it up a bit. And have some comments and things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all of this is the before time. There's the after time. The after you defend, you have your PhD, your Dr. Blank. Uh, then what next? So, Marcus, do you have an idea of what next? Um, nothing solid, but I am, there's a few sort of pathways of postdocs that I am sort of exploring now. Um, right now, I'm putting most of my energy into a, a NASA postdoctoral program fellowship. Um, so that'll take up my energy until about July 1st, and then I'll start casting a much wider net, because, you know, <laughs> not going to put everything, all my eggs into one basket, sure. but all my energy right now is focused on that. And it's looking for positions at other institutions, or... Uh, yeah, yeah, so that fellowship specifically, they um, let you apply to one position, you know, three times a year. Um, this one would be out at NASA Ames, actually. Uh, excellent, out in California. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Abby and David, um, what next? But also, you're perhaps a, a, I would say a special case, but um, at least in this room. Uh, you two are married, mm -hmm. um, so you have what is called a two-body problem, or <laughs> with your kids, a four-body problem. Yeah. Um, yes. How does that factor in, in kind of the forward planning? Um, yeah, so it, it definitely adds an extra layer of challenge. I think uh, the preferred way to go about steps in the scientific world is to approach it with complete openness to the location and mm. just say, I'm going to focus on the science, and I'm going to apply to opportunities that meet my scientific um, goals or desires. Um, but the way that we've approached it is to actually pick locations first hmm. um, and then um, go based on that. So that's uh, it, it makes it a trickier optimization problem, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, there's usually academia, you know, going for the, you know, the postdoc at a university and eventually, you know, a, a, a faculty position. But what are the options in industry, too, which can broaden the opportunities if you pick pre-pick a location? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities for both of us, actually, in, in industry. And I think both of us are kind of trying to still figure out what we want to do. Um, when you grow up? When we grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever that is. Whenever that is. Um, uh, so I think the postdoc or doing a postdoc at one level um, that's gives you a little bit more time to figure out what you want to do <laughs> when you grow up. Um, so at least both of us are looking for postdocs as well. Um, as far as like, do we want to go the academic route? Do we want to switch to industry? And the cool thing for both of us actually is that um, there are academic postdocs, but there are actually a lot of industry postdocs as well. Um, so for me, you know, I can find there are postdoc positions at uh, pharmaceutical companies and biotech mm, companies, and sure. those are good options where if I'm not totally sure I want to go full throttle on industry, but kind of want to be able to, you know, switch back into academia if that's where I want to go, it kind of, you know, it's a short term postdoc. Um, so it gives you that flexibility. Well, I wish you all the <laughs> best of luck and skill. You know, sometimes is it better to be lucky or is it better to be skillful? It's better to be both. <laughs> and so I wish you the best of luck in your post-PhD path. Uh, we have been talking with Abby Reens, David Reens, and Marcus Paquette, 
recently defended or soon to defend PhDs from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And they shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of a peek into the world of graduate school. Thank you all very much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.